Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? With your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning and welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Thank you all for joining us today. Kevin McLean is our guest. He is returning for part two as we left off on our previous show with uh, a lot of things that we didn't get to cover. So uh, he is back today and I look forward to having a follow-up conversation. Good morning, Kevin. It's great hey, to have morning, you on Jeff. the show. How are again. you doing, sir? I'm very good, and thanks for joining us. How's everything going during these troubling times? We're, we're as I say, we're, we are sheltering in place, but uh, not not necessarily because, as you and I were talking uh, offline a little bit ago, the needs of what professional investigators can offer even during these troubling times uh, really helps us be a valuable asset, uh, you know, for our community, uh, for our state, and you know, for our country to be able to still assist and uh, solve some of these uh, different types of issues that are going on. Absolutely. And in, in many states, in most states, we are considered essential employees. And that goes from uh, an investigative standpoint, doing work, uh, whether it's civil or criminal, as well as security and, and helping uh, from a security standpoint with a lot of locations that, that need some extra um, protection and, and visual deterrence and so forth. So, I always tell my listeners and start off the show with saying that there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States, and this show works to address problems with the integrity of those involved in the wrongful convictions and things that can be fixed and how. We talk to victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial system is not truth and justice for all. And that everyone needs to be aware this widespread problem in our country does not discriminate against race, religion, sex, or nationality. Anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. So keep in mind, this is a live show. Feel free to call or email uh, us with questions or topics that you'd like to discuss now or here discussed on our show today or in the future. We are here to help and look forward to speaking to uh, many of you. And just a reminder again that there's approximately 2 million people in jail or prison today in the United States. And there is no perfect formula that can be applied to how many are innocent but it's believed to be anywhere from 2% to as much as 10%. And that equals anywhere from 40,000 to as many as 200,000 people that are wrongfully incarcerated in prison. So with that, there's really no one better to have on the show than Kevin McLean, who has worked numerous uh, criminal defense cases and, and um has been very successful throughout his career in, in uh, trying to overturn some of them and, and right the wrong. So for those very reasons, we all know the defense must conduct its own investigation instead of relying on the investigation conducted by the prosecutorial team. And to, to start off or, or to, to continue, one of the last things we were talking about 
I know you, you told the story of, of one of the, the greatest feelings um, for you uh, when you were driving one of your clients home and, and later became friends with him and or during that time became friends with him. And, and I know one of the greatest feelings for me is when I'm in the courtroom and my client is found innocent or wins an appeal or an exoneration and having the honor, opportunity to drive them home from prison or the courthouse is so rewarding. And, and I know you talked about that on your last show. I just wanted to mention, I, I had the privilege uh, last year driving somebody who was a, a juvenile lifer. And he he was in prison, uh, pretty much incarcerated since he was 15, and finally released when he was almost 37 years old. And that was because the Supreme Court changed their, their rulings and said that it's unconstitutional this was in back in, I believe, 2012 when this process started, that it was unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life without parole. And, and that was one of the cases. And in this particular case that I'm referring to, he decided, they gave him an option. They said, listen, say that you did it, because he all along said that he, he did not. And they said, admit that you did it, and we will change it from... Um, from basically uh, a homicide of the first degree to homicide of the third degree, and you'll be eligible for parole in a few months. And it was a sure thing. And right along that, that same time, I had a confidential informant that came forward that produced to, to what I believe was a person of interest. And they didn't want to do anything because they wanted this, this individual to get out of prison. And I, I think it was the right move. Long story short, though, I drove him home. It was, you know, almost a three-hour drive with him and his father, and there was a, a camera crew following us because there was a documentary that that'll be coming out probably later this year on the ID channel uh, in reference to this case. But it is—it's definitely the most gratifying feeling when when you have those situations. So uh, I can relate to you and totally understand. I'm not sure if there's any others that you want to share about, but it—it's it, why we do what we do. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, congratulations on that, because uh, what Jeff was just describing out there to the listeners is uh, something that's very rare uh, in our profession, that we actually are able to, one, uh, find the evidence, find witnesses, find information and stuff, but then, two, be able to present it in the way that it needs to be presented to the courts, and then, three, for the courts to actually really, truly look at everything, evaluate everything, and then come to their own conclusion that's it. Actually, got an innocent person here and willing to reverse, you know, what the you know the previous courts had ruled upon. So there's a lot of hurdles in those type of cases. That that's where they're so very rare. Whenever what they call a post conviction case gets overturned and you see somebody walking out of uh, prison. Uh, so uh, it, it, there's a lot of hurdles and it takes perseverance. You know, uh, from investigators like Jeff to be able to, to fight that good fight and stay the course because a lot of people are going to just walk by the wayside and, and just like, well, they got him and, or they give up. Um, you know, they're saying, well, I can't find this witness or I can't find that. And, you know, I always tell people, I always tell uh, the clients and say, well, I can't find that witness yet. So, in other words, we never give up. We're constantly, constantly looking, constantly never letting that case, <clears throat> you know, leave our minds. Because I'm sure, like you, Jeff, that uh, these cases haunt you. They will stay with you a lifetime. 
because you just know, you know, you know that you know that uh, they got the wrong person. And uh, uh, you were talking about the satisfaction and the feeling you had, you know, driving that young man home who now is, you know, a middle-aged adult. Um, there, there's a lot of things you just don't think about. Uh, I remember one time when uh, we had a post-conviction case that literally in the in the courtroom, uh, the judge told the uh, basically the guards in the prison to release that man. And they're like, but, but your honor, we have to take him back and, and, you know, basically, you know, process him out. He says, I said to turn him loose right now and to unshackle those chains right now. The sound, Jeff, of those chains going off of him and falling to the ground. My nephew, who was just kind of getting started in the business at the time, I said, always remember that sound. That's a sound you don't hear too often. And so now the next minute, the client is like, what do I do? He had no clue. Like, where do I start? Where's my life start at? Because I'm just, I'm free. I'm a free man, and it's just such a surreal moment, you know, to start their whole life just like that in that instance. And uh, that's one thing I think that, with, with as investigators, that not only you know helping get them to that point where now they become a free person, that we've uncovered the truth, and that's what we're seeking is the truth here, but. Also, then, they even help in that transition because we really develop that 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 bond, you know, with them. I mean, during the time of the investigation, you always have to be impartial and objective and just find the facts. But after the fact, you really get to know the person along the way. And like I say, you know, one of my uh, you know clients who became my friend, uh, you know, Gerald Simonson. Um, you know, we just uh, really you know shared a, a lot of common things uh, as as life went on and stuff. And <clears throat> like I say, I've always stuck with that case, even to this day, Jeff, because there's a family out there that was a victim, and they still have not gotten closure on this. There's someone out there that had done something horrible, uh, you know, to their one of their family members, and for the most part. Societies said that it's case closed. You know, they got the right guy, even though it was the wrong guy. But for as far as they're concerned, it's a case closed. But people like you and I know that there's still somebody out there uh, roaming the streets, or now, uh, you know, all these years later in life that has got a deep, dark secret that they're hiding. And who knows? Maybe they've done it again, and nobody's ever, you know, looked into it. That's where that that driving part of us still like we've always got our ear to the ground and always looking for additional information because you know we know the case we know the facts we know the circumstances and we know the players plus what ultimate satisfaction does that give for us for our clients to get total total exoneration from not only the court system but also society absolutely and you gave me chills telling that story and when they took the shackles off that that's amazing and it's it's funny because my next topic that I want to talk about is the PCRA process, but let's hold off on that for a second and talk a little bit about, number one, you're right, they almost always have to get processed out of the jail or the prison, which really doesn't make sense. You know, they're, they're, they're innocent, but they still need uh-huh. to go back to jail with handcuffs on and leave with them off instead of just walking out in the courtroom, you know, like, like your client did. So that, that's very humbling and, and um, good to hear that the judge did that, that there are good people out there. But yeah. you also mentioned and, and bring up, and I became um, 
close with the the family where you know I, I consider them family on, on that juvenile uh, lifer and and talk to his mom and dad um, pretty often and we're still corroborating and you know I'm still working that case and, and trying to prove some other theories but you don't people don't realize that you know somebody comes out a middle-aged adult or an adult they don't have a driver's license they now need to you know at 40 years old go and, and take driving lessons and then they got to apply for a driving test they go to get a job it's so difficult to get a job you know regardless of whether they were guilty innocent um exonerated you know well what have you done for the last 20 years i was in prison <laughs> i mean how else do right. you answer it and it really creates so many challenges you know and then they have to get used to life and in general and it's there's a lot of ptsd you know they're sure. they were told when to eat when to sleep when to when to you know exercise when to work when to go to school like on on the state's schedule you know now all of a sudden they come home and they can take a shower whenever they want they can eat whatever they want whenever they want you know it's it's really um it's a challenge for the family, you know, and, and then they have to be supported, you know, and if they don't have family out there that can, you know, bring them in and, and provide uh, a place for them to stay, they're, they're screwed. I, yeah. I mean, they really are. It's unfortunate. But what else can they do? And I, I, I don't think they, you know, the general population takes all that into mind, you know, how it affects and has the rippling effects on friends, family, and, you know, other people uh, on the perimeter of that person. I mean, you, you think about this, I mean, a question I would pose to your listeners is, what is the price of freedom? What is the price of one day you being locked up in jail, Jeff, for a crime you didn't commit? What, what is the price of that uh, to you? Because... First of all, the media has now put that out into every kind of press there is about you, whether it's whether you're innocent or not, you're going to be guilty by uh, the press. And that is something you can never take back. Now, take that forward for somebody who's been in for 20 years. And there's been numerous publicity about their case, and not in a, in a positive way. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the day, uh, after new technology and, and new scientific uh, you know, type of methodologies are developed, that they find out, gee, we got it wrong. Well, you can never give back that person his life or her life. You know? And it's just like, what is that price? Um, you know, they've, they've lost out on life. They've lost out on opportunities and love and family, you know, gatherings and, and things like that. And you just never can, you know, replace that. And, uh, you know, you would like people sometimes to say, I'm sorry, you know, we got it wrong. And I, I did have that fortunate thing one time on a case I worked on that uh, uh, I think we shared it on the last show about uh, our client. Uh, his He was a young man about uh, 19 years old, and his uh, best friend was one who'd gotten uh, brutally killed. Yep. And uh, that was a death penalty case that we got uh, basically dismissed after, <clears throat> I think, about eight months of work in the case and stuff. And later on, I was meeting with the, one of the lead investigators again on, on another matter, and we got to be actually, you know, friends. I mean, I never look at it as an adversarial thing. I try not to anyway. And we were talking, and he told me, he says, you know what, Kevin? He goes, we got it wrong. 
He says, we missed that. We missed the information that, that you guys had found, and we, and we got it wrong. And I told him, I said, well, I said, I understand. And I said, you know, it takes a bigger man to admit mm-hmm. all, because we all make mistakes. We're, we're no Absolutely. one's perfect. You know, right. and for him to say that really meant a lot, you know. Uh, matter of fact, years later, he wanted to come to work for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's that awesome. Was, that was kinda, but, you know, someone like that, they're seeking the truth. But sometimes, you know, law enforcement, first of all, they're, they're understaffed, you know, they're underpaid. And a lot of times they get political pressure and the, the, the media pressure on them. We've got to get somebody found guilty for this case. We've got to get somebody arrested for this because we're getting all this pressure coming down on us, you know, from different groups and things like that. And uh, so they take the path of least resistance, which sometimes happens to be the most vulnerable person, which when you had mentioned about uh, your, your juvenile uh, you know, client, you know, that was a big thing that happened years ago. Numerous juveniles, uh, I think it's Miller versus Alabama, I believe is a Supreme Court case, that uh, they said, whoa, you can't just throw away the keys on a, a young man that's 15, 16 years old for this crime, because first of all, um, our brains don't fully develop until we're about 23, 24, 25 years right. old. So to try them as an adult when they're still acting like a child, you know, is first and foremost, uh, you know, not a good thing to do. But then on top of that, a lot of times what would happen with these young people is that uh, they're, it's peer pressure. Uh, they're trying to be part of something, and, and maybe they don't. Uh, they're in a father, fatherless home or something like that. And the gang says, "Okay," because that becomes their family unit. And the gang says, "Here, you go do this because if you get caught, then it's not going to be any big deal. You won't get charged. You know, uh, they'll just slap you on the wrist because you're a juvenile." Well, how many how many juveniles have you interviewed in prison that are now serving a life sentence, or were it at least before this uh, case came out? They're serving a life sentence because. The, the pressure they got put on by their gang, you know, to go do something that they normally, you know, would not have done, but they were pressured into doing, thinking that they're just going to get slapped on the wrist, and then next thing you know, they're totally, um, you know, locked up, you know, basically the rest of their life. Yep, without a doubt, and and it's it's so difficult to uh, reverse that course once once that happens. So. Um, this is a perfect time to take a, a quick commercial break before we talk about more about the PCRA process and why it's so important to, to do everything you can be during the trial stage. So let's take a, a real quick break and hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
You are listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? To reach Jeff Stein or his guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or you can send an email to Stein at elpspda.com. Now, back to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Welcome back. I am Jeff Stein, your host, and today my guest is Kevin McLean, and we are talking about some wrongful convictions and PCRAs and appeals. And um, Kevin, you mentioned that what what you can't really put a price on freedom, and I I, I don't know if this is the best way of saying this that the, this kind of the general rule, but several people who come out and sue after they've been incarcerated for, you know, long periods of time for a wrongful conviction. A lot of times it's it's a million dollars for every year that they've been incarcerated. And 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 that by no means is any kind of blueprint or standard. Um, you know, it, it really depends on the, the situation, the negotiation, um, so many things that are above my pay grade to even figure out. But a lot of times you hear, you know, they were they were in for ten years, they got ten million or so forth. What, what people also don't realize is that you can't put a price on the defense at the time of the original trial, and it gets expensive, and people don't have the money, don't have the funds, you know, unless, unless, you're, unless you're like OJ, and you can, uh, you, you know, you have the dream team working for you, that kind of thing, um, you know, as, as the superstars and sports figures, you know, have millions and millions of dollars. Most people don't have that kind of money. To spend, you know, they don't have fifty thousand for a retainer for an attorney, let alone another five thousand, ten thousand for a private investigator to to do the legwork. So, what do people do? You know, they they cut corners. They don't do all the investigations that should be done during the trial stage, and that's when they're. It's like they're playing Russian roulette, and they lose the case. Now, trying to overturn that, and and we'll get into that in a second, you know, with the PCRA process, it, it takes a, it, it's a lot harder. <laughs> so my suggestion, my advice, don't cut any corners during that trial stage and do everything you have to 110%. Don't take anything for granted because you're innocent that the truth will, will prevail because that doesn't happen all the time. Would you agree with that or have anything to add to that, Kevin? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, there was a quote, and I won't quote it probably correctly, but I'll try to get as close as possible, but uh, F. Lee Bailey, one of the most uh, <laughs> prominent criminal defense attorneys probably ever to come into a courtroom, had said that you know, if you could take, uh, if I could have an average attorney and a great investigator, or have a great attorney and a sub, basically par investigator or no investigator, I'm going to take the average attorney and a, and a good investigator all the time. Because without the investigation, there is no case. I don't care how good of an attorney you are, if you don't have someone out there gathering your facts and being your eyes and ears on the streets, especially if you're talking like a uh, a real you know heinous type of case where it's a you know a homicide or or you know something of that nature uh, where there's a lot of witnesses or there's a lot of forensics or there's just a lot of different elements to the to the case, you have to have an investigator. I mean. Bottom line, you have to, because uh, 
you know, there's only so much that uh, cross-examination that, that a, a good attorney can do on on witnesses. You still have to have someone out there that's going to bring in your side of the story and tell the rest of the story. Absolutely. And, and yeah, there's, I'm, I'm trying to look for it, and I don't know if I'll find it, but there was another quote um, that F. Lee Bailey had mentioned, and uh, along those lines, what you were just talking about, that, uh, you know, a good investigator is better than, than an attorney or something along those lines. But absolutely, you know, we're, you're, you're out there getting the facts, talking to the people on the streets. You know, the attorney is, is the one who's able to put it into legal verbiage and, and speak what you identified and found in the courtroom. So if you think about it, Jeff, there, there's, two different viewpoints whenever a case comes in. The attorney's looking at it from a, a legal objective as far as like, okay, how can we uh, position our, ourselves in the trial, knowing case law, knowing you know, trial strategy, and, and you know, various things like that. Uh, how do we present our case? What's our theme going to be? What's our theory going to be? It's the investigator's job to go out there and to put that case together as far as finding witnesses, not just the ones listed on the police reports, but finding additional witnesses, going to that crime scene, examining the crime scene, going and looking at the evidence, you know, in other words, testing everything, not just making assumptions, but verifying. And the reason why an investigator goes and does that versus the attorney uh, is, is very simple. The attorney is basically the advocate for the client, and he can't become a witness. So let's just say that the attorney went out on his own, or on her own, and this has happened before, and they interview a really uh, you know, good witness. What I mean by a good witness, they have a lot of facts, a lot of information that can really shed light on what, what really happened. And this witness tells them a great you know, scenario. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be the thing that breaks the case wide open. Well, they don't take a statement from them. They just verbally interview them, take down some notes and things like that. Then they bring in this star witness for the defense, and the star witness gets up there, and all of a sudden, they flip-flop. What's that mean? Well, they change their story on the stand. Now, what's the attorney going to do at that moment? He's going to say, well, wait a second. Didn't you tell me the X, Y, and Z? Well, he can't impeach this witness. Because, you know, the only way he can do that is if he becomes a witness, which means he has to get off the case. And uh, I actually had a, a, a situation, Jeff, where I had to testify in a, uh, in a military court and educate uh, the judge advocate about why you had to have an investigator do the investigation versus the attorneys and really kind of explain to him what I'm just explaining here about the necessity for a factually, you know, based investigation, you know, someone who is independent of the attorneys that can go in and then testify about what they found. Yep. No, well, well said. You, you really summarized that perfectly for our listeners. So I appreciate that. So w- with all of that being said, let's talk a little bit about the PCRA process and, and, why it's more difficult than during the original trial stage, as well as um, not only how COVID-19 is impacting this process currently with us, but the cost associated with that as well. And for the listeners, the PCRA is the Post-Conviction Relief Act. And for in, in layman's terms, 
uh, Kevin, maybe maybe you have another way of, of describing this, but really in layman's terms, it's the way to get a new trial after you've been convicted. And you really can do that one of two ways. Show that there was ineffectiveness of counsel at the time of your trial or that there was, there was new information that wasn't available at the time of your trial. And you don't have subpoena powers. Uh, your attorney doesn't have subpoena powers like they did during the trial stage because now you need to get approval from the judge if you want to subpoena something. Um, it, you're looking at going back, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, however long it is. It's um, much more difficult to go back and try to talk to a witness from years ago, as opposed to somebody who just witnessed the crime or witnessed the incident, whether it's an alibi witness, a fact witness, an expert witness, it's just, it's all fresh on their plate instead of past tense. So that's kind of the very basic of it. Would you agree or do you have something to add to that that I'm missing? Yeah, I'd I'd agree with you. I think... um Kind of how I've always had it described to me is like uh, when when you have a, a chair and you got three uh, basically uh, legs of the chair and the three legs of the chair you've got one is the ineffective assistance of counsel you've got the other chair you know post would be failure to investigate and then the final one would be basically what they would call Brady violations or newly discovered evidence and so those are what they call the three prongs. You know, on you know, doing your 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 post conviction, and we can tie it into like what's going on now with this COVID uh, situation. A post conviction case, you're talking about going back fifteen, twenty years sometimes on tracking down uh, crime scenes, tracking down witnesses, uh, you know, tracking down information. Uh, in a situation like this right now, it, you know, where you, where you may be in a shelter in place state as an investigator, every day. Every day can be the difference between possibly somebody's freedom and staying the rest of their life because maybe that key witness is now on dialysis or in a uh, you know COPD or something like that, and so they're very vulnerable to these uh, types of things that are happening. So every day that ticks by in our kind of world is a possible day that we could never get back that could be the difference. And so that's another added pressure that we have now uh, in uh, our cases that we still have because these post-conviction cases just don't go away because COVID comes on. These people are still living their lives behind bars and, and crying out from behind those bars that they're free uh, and they should be free and that uh, they just want someone to hear their, their side of the story and they've been begging for someone to come and you know listen to them and then go out and actually um, you know investigate everything. And that's where, like I say, we come in doing that post-conviction, which is a huge challenge because, um, well, witnesses disappear, information disappears, you know, evidence disappears, crime scenes disappear. So then we have to go out and try to recreate information or try to find information we didn't know still might be there. And uh, I, I can kind of share with you, you, your listeners here, Jeff, on this case uh, I think I mentioned in our last show, that uh, uh, our young man, who was 16 when he went in, has uh, been in there for 23 years. And when I went and testified on his post-conviction relief, uh, one of the things that I had done was to go back to 1997. 97. That's back when the Internet is just coming into existence. 
And a lot of people were on the Internet, and we were all putting our websites together. And, oh, my gosh, you could see my original website. It would be quite comical. But nevertheless, officers, police officers were putting together web pages and police blogs. A lot of officers like to blog. Well, mm-hmm. in this particular case, this officer had put a police blog together of all different journal entries, of like almost like a diary is what a blog is. And he was telling different stories. And one of the things he liked to talk about was what they called war stories. And so I had to find uh, his police blog from 1997. Now, wow. the general public would go on the Internet and you know, maybe try to search this person's name and stuff like that. And you're going to see a site that's going to say, you know, like, here's where police blogs were on. But when you click on that site, it takes you to a dead, uh, basically a non-existent site. It's no longer there. Most investigators, most of the general public would probably give up at that moment thinking, well, it's no longer there. I, you know, there's nothing I can find. But guess what? It is there. You just got to know how to go find it. And there's different websites out there. This particular one was called archive.org, which is just what it says. It's an archive. Uh, uh, Google takes pictures of every single website since literally they came into existence back, I think, uh, the Internet started back in, uh, you know, 96, 97, somewhere in that neighborhood when it started, okay? And Google started taking pictures of websites, and that's how they would create their rankings, you know, um, on the Internet and things like that. Well, guess what? You could still find police blogs. You could still find information out there if you just knew how to search. And I was very fortunate to be able to learn these techniques and things. And lo and behold, I found his blogs. I found his war stories. And I was able to testify about some of his war stories, where even it makes submissions about planting evidence and about uh, misrepresenting to his superiors about the facts of a case. And that was one of the things I ended up testifying about in, in the trial. But it's going back and, uh, like I say, not just assuming, because most people are going to assume information. I've always said never assume, always verify. Just because you see something in black and white and it's there and says, well, it must be true, look at it and really understand what they're saying here. And is somebody just misreading what the statement was or something like that? Because that can be the difference between, you know, a person still spending time behind, you know, bars versus possibly getting a chance at at freedom. And uh, that's one thing I've always lived by and always taught and trained on is never assume, always verify. And then when you can cite the specific cases where you can show it, it really brings it home to say, look, this is why we do what we do. Hmm. You're absolutely right, and verify, 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 and it's it's more difficult during that PCR process, and, you know, with COVID-19, you know, some of the other hindrances are you're on the clock. When when new information is received, the, the clock starts ticking, and I don't agree with this. It doesn't make sense to me. It used to be 60 days. Now you have... Um, a year. And I, I believe that's everywhere. Or is that just, just Pennsylvania? I'm not sure if it goes state by state or federal. Do you know the answer to that? I think each state has got different uh, requirements, but then, you know, your last uh, resort would be uh, you know, in federal courts. Um, but you're absolutely right. We're under a clock. 
we're under a, a certain timetables to be able to put information together. Now, like, for example, uh, the case I worked on for 12 years, uh, when we finally filed our final, what they call petition, it was our fourth amended petition for post-conviction relief because we had, you know, found additional information each time we were finding new information. But I think one of the other things that ought to be brought out to the listeners too, Jeff, is that that first petition that's filed for this post-conviction relief, guess who usually files that? It's our clients. Oh, our yeah, clients absolutely. Pro se? That, that pro se, in other words, they're filing it themselves. Now, think about this. You know, just the general public or you and I, do you think if we weren't in the business that we were in right now, that we'd be able to sit down and write up something in the proper legal terminology and things of that nature that would sustain uh, a challenge in court about its validity to be considered as, you know, possibly, you know, some claims that, uh, you know, we overlooked or something like that. That, that to me, just seems like it's wrong. Um, that we're having to trust somebody who may have had mental issues in the first place. Maybe they don't have the highest IQ or anything like that, and now they have to scream from behind the walls that someone needs to look at their stuff, but they don't even know how even to tell somebody. And yet the courts are saying, well, they have to file the first you know, petition themselves before anything else can be done, before we can appoint anybody to help them on the case. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. That just doesn't seem right. No, it, it, it doesn't. And, and for, for the listeners, what happens is, you know, a lot of times when, when the clients who are convicted, they become what's labeled as jailhouse lawyers. You know, they, they go to the law library as much as they can. They do their research. And really, it's, it's like um, self-schooling, which a lot of us are doing or a lot of our children are doing right now with COVID-19 where the schools are closed and they're doing it virtually through Zoom meetings or, or just self, really self-learning. They're, they're being giving, given assignments. I'm, I'm seeing what my kids are going through. They're given assignments and they got a kind of a, a self-tutorial. And that's what the uh, folks who are incarcerated they go to the law library and they study and they research and they put together this petition to turn into the courts. And that is just step number one. On a PCRA, just because they file a petition doesn't mean they're automatically granted a new hearing or a new trial. If, if their PCRA is approved, that just means that now they can have a PCRA hearing to further elaborate and explain why they should have a new trial. So it's really like you have to have a, a trial before the trial. Right. And, and in, in that process, like I was saying earlier, you don't have subpoena powers. You don't have some of the um, freedom or rules and, and regulations that you had previously on the, um, during the trial stage. So it's, it's an uphill battle from there, you know, with a lot of other things that we've already mentioned. And the other thing is that when they file that petition, it's usually reviewed and approved or denied by the original trial judge. And so think about that folks. What, what that's saying is that the judge who, who was the judge on, on that case needs to, if, if he rules that, yeah, I think there should be a, a new trial, it's, it's almost like saying, well, he screwed up on, on the first trial. 
And who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. So sometimes there's some egos involved. And now the original criminal defense attorney or public defender, whoever it may have been, becomes an ally with the prosecutor because he, he or she wants to say, well, yeah, we did everything we were supposed to do because they don't want to have mud on their face either as they were, um, it, they're now labeled as, you know, not providing effective counsel. And that's a, a negative mark on their record. So it becomes sort of a, a good old boys club just trying to get through that first process. W- would you concur with that? <laughs> Yes, it's an extreme challenge, so that's why, you know, when you do see a post-conviction case that gets overturned, you just don't know all the hurdles and all the different things that had to occur, you know, that the client had to experience and his family had to experience, let alone the attorney and the you know, investigative team, and this, it's an emotional roller coaster. Uh, literally is. It's an emotional roller coaster, and you got to be in it for the long haul because there is going to be these ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And uh, but it requires, you know, a, a post-conviction relief case when you do get approved to start the case. It's a paper chase. What I mean by that is you got to find every single piece of police reports and evidence and photographs. Anybody that ever touched this case, ever been involved in this case, the original investigative notes, the original attorney file, uh, anything and everything, and then somebody, and it's usually you or I, you know, uh, has to take the time to read every little thing, every little nugget, because contained, they always say the devil's in the details, contained in those reports may be what's going to change the difference in the course of this case and possibly, you know, uh, having your client get a chance to possibly walk out of the doors for showing that they were um, actually innocent. And if I can mention, there's been uh, a few TV shows on over the past couple of years, um, Conviction Integrity Unit, and there was another one, I forget the name of it, um, that are all about wrongful convictions. And unfortunately, although I, I enjoyed listening to them or watching them, they didn't make it for very many seasons. There's currently one that, that's uh, based on a true story called For Life. Have you watched that or are you familiar with that by any chance? I had heard of it, but I've not watched it, no. It, it's, it's interesting because um, it, it's based on a... Or, a real life story where an inmate um, was uh, wrongfully accused of a crime and, and they show uh, he gets locked up and he's locked up for 12 years, loses his marriage, you know, his daughter, he has issues with, you know, family and, and all that stuff. He ends up becoming an attorney. He actually got his law degree to represent himself, which there was a loophole. He found his way through this loophole and a former Senator assisted him with it. And, um, but it shows how, you know, there was a good friend of his who testified against him, finally admits that he lied about it because he didn't want to go to jail. And so there's so many different things that really take take place to, to get somebody locked up. And then when you have that PCRA process and you try to go through all those hurdles, uh, it, it as Kevin stated, it's one hurdle after another. And it becomes expensive unless you're able to do it pro se and, 
you're um, you have some some folks that are helping you um, do it for um, little to, to no money, which uh, I, I know both you and I like to um, volunteer our services when we can, but we still have to make a living. You know, it's it's not that we can just do this every day because these these some of these trials are. I've worked 50, 60 hours a week on some of these cases. And, and so they can get very involved and very detailed when you're hitting the streets and trying to find these witnesses. And you have old addresses from 15 years ago and you're trying to locate them here and now. It definitely creates a problem. So we, we've talked about with the PCRA, you have to first try to uh, articulate that there was ineffective counsel or new evidence that wasn't available at the time of the trial, then you have to petition the courts to have a, a PCRA hearing, which would then determine whether you go to uh, a, a new trial or not. And if you get to that stage, now you're back to square one where you got to go and, and have that full-blown trial and put all the, the previous witnesses on and try to recant statements. And um, just because one person says that they lied it doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be um, that the case is going to be won or overturned because of that. Now you need corroborating evidence. <clears throat> and what you will find is that in most of those cases, when you have somebody who's going to recant their statement, the prosecution, instead of cooperating and saying in most cases, not all, but in most cases, oh, wow, we, we made a mistake or they made a mistake or we didn't know that that person was, was lying to us back then. They will, in several cases, my experience, and Kevin, you can share yours, but they will try to intimidate the witness. And again, if you and I try to intimidate a witness, we can end up in jail. But when the prosecution sends a, a, a detective out to intimidate, they may not call it intimidate, but I, I don't know how you how else you can slice it or dice it. And that means that they're going to say, you know, you're going to go to jail now for perjury because you perjured yourself then or, or um, you're perjuring yourself now. And why are you changing your story? And they're intimidating them to, to just go away and mind their own business. So that becomes an issue. Am I right? I mean, do you have you have you come across that? And I'm, I'm sure you have. Oh, most definitely. Matter of fact. I've got a few cases going on like that right now where uh, we've got a critical witness out there who can probably, basically, uh, our, our client can walk out the door tomorrow if she will tell the truth. Um, and the big concern is going to be, when we approach her, is uh, is she going to be worried about the recantation? In other words, she's said I didn't say that, or that they forced me to say this because they threatened me with taking away my kids or something like that. All these years earlier, uh, they're going to say, "Well, what? Will I get in trouble?" That's always the big question they're going to ask. Will I get in trouble? You know, and it's like you're, you're just looking for the truth. You know, whatever the truth is, is you know, and, and it takes a person to step up, meaning a witness to step up. But one thing that uh, I've always told witnesses in situations like this, it's like, look, you know, I'm not the police. I can't force you to do anything. But I can tell you that, I, I, you know, you seem like a good person, you know, and that this has been on your conscience and on your heart for a long time. And uh, it's not going to go away. You know, I mean, you, you know, uh, if, if you truly do know the truth of what really happened and you were intimidated into saying something that wasn't truthful, 
there's a young man or a young woman that's now, you know, in their middle ages that is still sitting behind bars, you know, because of what happened, what, what was done to you. And I said, uh, this is going to be something that's going to haunt you the rest of your life, but we're here to listen. We're here to, you know, help, you know, right or wrong, so to speak. Right. And, uh, but it's still, it's still up to that person, um, you know, and uh, it's sad because you're right. They won't admit when they're wrong, you know, as far as, you know, former, you know, uh, on a case where a law enforcement officer has intimidated somebody, threatened somebody, done whatever, people get afraid because they don't want to, uh, you know, make them look bad or have the potential of them getting uh, in trouble. And mm-hmm. so that's always, a, a, you know, the line that we have to, to deal with, even though we know that person right there has got the keys to freedom right in their hands. You know, now, how do we basically uh, go approach them and make them realize that? You know, that, look, we're just here for the truth. That's all we're doing. We're, we're not trying to put words in your mouth or anything like that, but we just want to know what you know. And that's a challenge that, that, that comes about in, uh, you know, in, in our profession all the time. And it's, it's gut-wrenching in certain respects because we know that person holds the keys to this person's freedom. Yep. I have uh, I had a case that we we got to a PCRA hearing and I I subpoenaed the witness who was not only the witness he was the um, the victim as well he was shot uh, several times in the stomach and so the the client was charged with attempted homicide and he first told me the witness for, or, or victim I should say. Uh, several years ago told me, uh, wrote a statement saying that he wasn't the shooter. He was coerced to, to say that it was and so forth. And, you know, he's recanting his statement. Then prior to the hearing, I knew he wasn't going to show up. He told me um, because I, I interviewed him. I talked to him again. And then the prosecution sent the DA or sent the detectives over and they intimidated him. So what we did is we met in the parking lot and I took a a video statement from him. I even had him hold a recent newspaper so we can show that, you know, I didn't manipulate the date or time or anything. And he spoke for about eight minutes, um, looking right into the camera, addressing the judge, saying that he was coerced to testify that during the original trial, he realized and, and knew that 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 the defendant was not the shooter and he got up and he walked out of the courtroom and the DA, the DA sent the police after him and said, if you don't come and testify against them, we're going to arrest you. So he did, he was coerced and he, um, he, he wanted to come in and and testify and do the right thing, but they came back and said, they're going to get him for perjury. He's, he did his time, you know, on other charges he wants to live a good life. He's he's changed his ways. He's got a family and so forth, and he had no. Um, he just didn't want to go to court to to uh, testify at the hearing. So I produced this video, and we asked the district attorney to provide him with immunity. Say, you know, you're not going to go after him for perjury. You know, and, and it wasn't the perjury from the original trial because the statute of limitations had expired. It's them trying to say that he's perjuring himself now. He even stated that he saw the original shooter on the streets in Philadelphia a year and a half ago. And they they wanted nothing to do with it. They wouldn't give him immunity. Um, 
my client's still in jail, even though the victim is saying he wasn't the shooter. So these are some of the obstacles that you have to deal with and and the adversary uh, approach that the prosecution takes not being cooperative to try to right the wrong and, and you know, right the ship in, in to the right direction. And, and you would think that they would be, uh, the prosecutors would be seeking justice and not to have another notch on their belt, you know, so to speak. And, uh, and this happens across the country, for, you know, for the listeners. I mean, that uh, you're just trying to, you know, show the truth. And it's like, you know, with DNA, where, for example, you could say DNA will prove what we're, we're you know, telling you has happened here. Well, we'll let you test this and this, but no, you can't test that. Well, why? I mean, does that make any sense at all? How can you control the fact that right. hey, you've got these, this new technology out there you know, with DNA, what they call touch DNA, that uh, can really help tell the truth and, and show more facts than you could ever find before? But instead of wanting to seek the truth, they're trying to control the narrative still and not give you all that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, it's just not, a, it, you know, it's, of course, the best system still in the world, but it's still very unfair and it's a very difficult challenge that we face all the time in doing these post-conviction cases because we're constantly got two strikes and we're in the bottom of the ninth and, you know, we're up up to bat, you know. Yep. So with that being said, this hour flew by and there's still a, a case that I wanted to talk to you about and didn't get a chance. So, um, and that's with the, the United States Marine, the military defense team. Um, so we're going to have to save that for another day because we only have another, we only have about a minute to close out sure. this show. And, and I want to thank you again for taking the time and providing uh, our listeners with some really good information, helpful information. Is, is there just... In a minute, do you have any recommendations that you would have for new investigators who want to learn more about being criminal defense investigators and how and what they should do to go about that? Well, I I definitely would say without, uh, you know, anything at all, they could contact you or I via our emails or on this, uh, you know, podcast and things like that. But one of the best books out there in in the marketplace is by a good friend of both of you, yours and mine, Brandon Perrin, called uh, Uncovering Reasonable Doubt. It's one of the best books out there on the market. It was the first criminal defense book, and it's still a book that I have everybody go through. It really helps break down what we call the component method and how to approach cases. Um, But you're not going to learn that in a college setting. You really need to talk to people like you and I that will take the time to help mentor you and to educate you and and make sure you avoid the pitfalls that you and I have fell in uh, numerous times. So I think we want to pass on the mantle to the younger investigators because they're going to become that new voice for the voiceless as we get older, you know. And uh, there's got to be people like you and I out there that can uh, want to help uh, the others. And there are a lot of us in, the, in that field that are just that way. I appreciate that. And I've had Brandon on the show before, and I still use his book on my cases and, and try to um, utilize the component method all the time with criminal defense cases. So thanks for bringing that up and sharing that. I appreciate it. For our listeners, uh, thank you so much for listening today. If uh, you'd like to reach out to Kevin and I, I've uh, we've mentioned our contact info before. You can reach out to us. You can reach me on Facebook and um 
post your questions or send us an email. If you enjoyed, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use to listen as we continue to increase our listener base. We appreciate your positive reviews. We hope you stay, stay safe during this COVID-19 pandemic. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week. 